fancy you! Nothing jump starts the imagination like great sound. What you guys were listening to in the beginning of this episode was just the sound for a movie. And do you know what movie it was? Could you identify the film just by the way it sounded? And without knowing what it was, without seeing the picture, what did that world look like in your mind? I love that about movie making. And a lot of folks say that sound is 50% of any film. Sound makes your movies better, right? I believe that sound is actually more than that. Sound is the trigger for me. Sound is what brings me into to new worlds, takes me to distant planets, brings me into the mind of a character, connects me emotionally with a character. Sound makes you laugh, sound makes you cry, sound makes you fucking run into the bathroom. You know what I mean? I love it. I absolutely love soundscapes and sound design. And that's what today's episode is about. I really want to take the time to introduce you to a craft, an important craft in our industry. It is the art of emotionally connecting you to a two-dimensional two image, to a flat surface, right? I can't wait to get out of fucking quarantine so that we can go back to the movie theater and I can watch movies the way I love to hear them, right? How cool is it when you're sitting in a, in a theater and the lights go down and it's just a black screen and you start to hear it and those sounds pull you in, those sounds shut off everything, they, they turn off all your outside stress, they turn off everything in the background. It's amazing. I mean, just listening to my space right now. What do you think is happening here in our space right now? With the crunching? Am I sitting in like, am I on a farm right now? Are there like three or four cows behind me chewing on things? I think so. Maybe there's someone like playing in a, in a, in a wood shop or a mechanic shop with the clinking sounds and the chewing sounds that are happening behind me. Or maybe it's just my girlfriend who has no regard for a guy who's trying to record the intro for his show. I think that's what you're hearing right now. <laughs> Welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy, and we are in season three of the show very excited about season three we're a couple episodes deep at this point uh and today 
What I'm going to give you is a sound experience, an audio experience like none other. We're going to sit and talk with one of the top sound designers, supervising sound editors in the industry, uh, plucked right from Skywalker Sound. And oh my God, he said Skywalker Sound. Right. I know all you nerds out there are like, this is the top of the top, cream of the creme of the creme. And that's what we're, that's what we're going for in season three. And today, I'm really excited to introduce you guys, if you've never heard of him before, if you've never met him before, uh, to Tim Nielsen. Tim is the man. He has been sound designing amazing pieces and amazing projects. It's funny, when you hear this interview, he just sort of drops these films <laughs> that he works on, or that he had worked on, and I just laugh at it. It's just like, huh, oh, uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah, no big deal. Uh, Galaxy Quest, no big deal. Uh, worked on the GoldenEye video game, right? I can hear you guys just getting, I can hear all that panty weather out there right now. GoldenEye video game. Oh my God. You were a big fan of that game, weren't you, Gina? You played GoldenEye. N64? I never played the game. Oh, go back to Chewy. God, you're such a waste. Uh, and then, and then uh, other movies like Indiana Jones, worked on uh, There Will Be Blood, if you want to get artistic guys. Uh, worked on uh, 47 Ronin, Snowpiercer. Uh, like just going through his IMDb right now, it's just like, holy fuck. Uh, the level of experience, Solo, the Star Wars movie that I liked, that no one else liked. It's a great movie, you guys need to grow up. Uh, and he just finished working on the new Minions movie that's coming out. So this guy's done everything. Everything from documentaries to uh, animations to big movies, big blockbusters to small independent films. Uh, it's all the same. You, no matter what, I mean, sure, the workload is bigger, but it's the same skill, same task, uh, and he's one of the best. And he shares a lot on this episode. So if you are just a movie nerd and you want to understand why movies are great to you, this is a good episode for you. If you're someone that is looking for a career path, if you're thinking about getting into the post end of films and you're looking for a really creative sort of... Um, rewarding job position this is the episode for you uh, Tim shares a lot uh, he's very open to sharing how he does things uh, and we get a little nerdy but most of it isn't so this isn't a total techie episode this is an episode that ju that just shows love to one of the most important aspects of the filmmaking process sound design so I want to say to everybody that's listening to the show, thank you as always for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram or following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. Those of you following have seen all sorts of really good posts and updates. I hope you were lucky enough to get your hands on one of the show's t-shirts because I think by the time the show comes out, they're off the market. I warned you. I fucking warned you that they were a limited run. So now anybody who has one of those t-shirts, if you bought a shirt for the show, send me a photo of it. Send me a photo of it, give me the middle finger, do whatever you want, and we're just gonna brag. We're gonna post, and we're gonna put it up there, and we're gonna brag that you got the shirt. And all you newcomers are like, how come you don't have any more shirts? Yeah, I told you, I warned you. So keep your eye out. Maybe I'll do another run in the future. I'm probably gonna do some more designs, we'll see. Uh, but next time I tell you to pick it up, pick it up. Pick it up when I tell you. 
Um, and also, uh, do yourself a favor and go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. That is the best place if you're a newcomer, if you're just showing up to the show and you're coming in late and you're like, season three, there's over 100 episodes of the show. How do I even start? Where do I go? Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There, I curate episodes based upon subject material. I also have like a top 25 episode selection. So you can get in there, you really dig your teeth into like what the show's about, all the different characters, all the different themes on this show. We started as a filmmaking show, but we're just not a filmmaking show. We've become more of a lifestyle show. We've become a show that really is there for you as you're making that crazy decision on what's gonna make me happy in my life, where am I gonna go with my life, who's gonna inspire me in my life. We're just trying to give you access to the folks that we find inspiring, that I wanna work with, that I find inspiring. And so go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and check it all out. All right. So without further ado, let's dig into the sonic landscape. That is the new episode of In Love With The Process. So grab your noise-canceling headphones and shut out all the sounds of the world around you. Leave your stresses behind. Close your eyes. Sit back. Relax. And enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Tim, thanks for being on the show, man. Well, thanks for having me. Very excited today. Um, uh, really cool to meet you. And uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm a huge sound nerd. Uh, I've been directing films for a while now. And one of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of doing a movie is actually building the soundscape. So, I- Well, that's nice to hear. I wish it was... Uh- more prevalent in the industry, but uh, that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, dude, it's true. Cause like there, there hits a point with like, cause I do a lot of horror stuff and I've, I've mm-hmm. said this on the show before, uh, when you're cutting horror, like raw footage, it's like people walking down the hall real slow and there's nothing scary about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of all the genres there are, there is a horror certainly benefits a lot from what we do for sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I just said, one of the, one of the, most interesting jobs I had was to do, redo the soundtrack of The Exorcist for its re-release. Whoa! And, um, um, I, I was on for a very short time. But I was tasked with basically redoing all the backgrounds or, or sweetening the backgrounds. Actually, so we didn't really redo it, but we we sweetened it for a multi-channel release and things like that. And 
because of the time constraints, it happened really fast. I was working like almost around the clock and I was alone out at Skywalker at like two in the morning on a Saturday night and the entire place was empty and I'm cutting sounds for The Exorcist, the movie that, you know, traumatized me as a child and I had to keep my door open. It was just like, it was so creepy. Awesome. What a cool thing to work on. Like, uh, yeah, that was fun. Ah, man, the soundscape in that movie is horrifying. The score yeah. is horrifying in that film. Yeah. And our job there was basically like, we took the approach of like, do no harm. You know, we're like, I'm not going to ruin a classic uh, thing. So it was just gentle sweetening, trying to match everything to the original style and the sounds and just kind of build it out a little bit, make it a little more enveloping and things like that. But we, we didn't do a whole lot. Oh, but um, that's we tried to sweeten it here and there. That's super cool, man. Well, <clears throat> let's catch the audience up here. So for those listening who don't know who Tim is, Tim has been working at Skywalker Sound for how long now? How long have you been there? I know, 21, 22 years now coming. 20, 21 years, I think, this year. Hell yeah. Did you? I think I read somewhere that you uh, started there as an intern and then actually stayed there, right? Uh, well, I went there, uh, I was going to University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and um, yeah, I, I heard that uh, Lucasfilm, or Skywalker, I should say, was going to take the first intern, their first official intern I think they'd ever had. <laughs> so I applied and somehow landed the, the gig and came up in the summer of 96 for eight weeks to work with Gary Rydstrom. And then I went back to USC to finish up, uh, and at that point I had no idea that I would get land a job there eventually, right? It was The internship was just self-contained, it was like, great, sure. it's over, you know, go away. Um, and then, yeah, luckily, right around the time I graduated, somebody needed uh, a, f a first assistant. His first assistant was moving into picture and moving to New York. Mm -hmm. And Gary said, you know, hire this guy. He's down in L.A. and let's bring him up. And so that's sort of how it all started back in 1999. Dude. April. That is so yeah. cool. Because uh, <clears throat> a lot of the listeners of the show are young folks that are trying to get in the industry. And they, I'm always talking about... Uh, the fact that there's no set path, um, you never really know sure. what you're going to get into, but it's nice to hear. Because a lot of people, I think a lot of people think that the simplest path is to go intern somewhere and then you're going to get a job there and it doesn't always happen, but it's nice. It's nice to hear that it worked out for you. Yeah. I mean, internships are super important. It's sad that there are less and less of them. I think as facilities, as budgets get tighter, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to sort of hire interns on any kind of a budget. The clients don't feel like they should pay for that and probably rightly so. And a lot of times the facilities don't necessarily have a lot of expendable income to be paying out of their own pocket to hire interns and things. And this was a, a paid internship. I mean, it was minimum wage at the time, which I think I still have my, it was $4 and 75 cents an hour, um, <laughs> which didn't even come close to paying the rent I had to cover to try and find a place to live up in the Bay area. But, uh -huh. um, but it's true. Internships are super important. And I, I try to, you know, we still try to take them when we can at the ranch. And although it's, it's, it's definitely not as easy as it once was even to, even to lend an internship, which is a little sad. Yeah, no, it's very true. It's tough these days. And a lot of internships now, 
I think the few interns that I've actually been able to work with, you know, because budget's a big thing, is uh, usually yeah. when it's school credit or something like that, and uh, we've been able to do that. But it's it's always tough. It's always tough to make that work. Um, so you've been uh, sound designing what the whole time, right? Did you get like how did you get into sound design? How did you get started with that? Well, I, I started as a, an assistant, a first assistant. Um, and then on my second show, which is a movie called Galaxy Quest, um, <laughs> I went to the guy I was working for named Tim Holland, who is a wonderful human. He's since retired. but um, And I was pretty ambitious even then. And even on the first film I worked on called Liberty Heights, which was a small Barry Levinson movie, I cut some of the sound effects. But on, on uh, Galaxy Quest, I went to him and I said, hey, can I cut a couple of the reels? And, you know, in addition to being the first assistant, and he sort of said, well, if you think you can, go for it. Um, and so I dove right into being an effects editor sort of on my second film and um, continued being an assistant as well as an effects editor. And then eventually that landed an assistant sound design job. And then that led to, you know, slowly but surely work my way up. I kept working as a fe- an effects editor for a long time. And then uh, there was a film, Journey to the Center of the Earth 3D, which was a film happening up in Canada. And a friend of mine who was the post-production supervisor who I had um, met on Lord of the Rings basically asked if I wanted to go up to Canada for a year and supervise that film in Vancouver. And so that was my first supervising credit. And that's sort of how that, that was 2007, I believe. I love how, <laughs> I love how you just mentioned these movies where you're like, ah, oh, you know, a little movie like Galaxy Quest, a little movie like Lord of the Rings, no big deal. <laughs> you know, what's funny is that of all the films that I've worked on, people, people are the most rabid fans of Galaxy Quest I found. It's very surprising to me. I, I was in a restaurant one time and we were just talking to a friend or something and somehow we were talking about Galaxy Quest and the waiter was just like, came over and was like, oh, you were done Galaxy Quest. It's like, you know, forget Avatar, forget Lord of the Rings. It's like Galaxy Quest, which is, I mean, one of my favorite films. I mean, it's an amazingly fun film, but it was, you know, it never found a wide audience. It's kind of a cult classic now, yeah, but yeah. it's just funny to see that so people even know about that film, let alone are such fans of it. But. <laughs> no, it's an amazing movie. It's got some of the best quotable lines ever in that movie. Oh, so. it's so well written. Same guy who wrote Groundhog Day, I believe, right? wrote that oh, so it's you know, right. yeah, ma- yeah. amazing writing yeah 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 so many in jokes <laughs> is there air out there you don't know the love <laughs> sam rockwell in that movie exactly. so good i'm the guy who goes on the planet and dies what's my last name <laughs> you're not gonna die on the planet guy i'm not what's my last name it's uh um uh, I don't know. nobody knows you know why because my character isn't important enough for a last name because I'm gonna die five minutes in. Die? You have a last name. Do I? Do I? So uh, <clears throat> let's 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 catch the audience up because I know a lot of people. Sound is kind of like a, I hate to say it this way, and, and no offense in any way, but sound is is the unsexy department. So like a lot of folks that watch movies really don't have an idea of how it's put together. And I was very fortunate early in my career, I actually shared a studio space with a sound mixer and a sound designer. And when I wasn't doing work, which most of the time was that, <laughs> I would spend time with him and go out in the field and learn how to record. And then I would go through the process of watching him sound design a scene or, or sound edit a scene. And um, it's really cool stuff. And I think the audience just doesn't understand the different tiers of it and the different levels of how an actual scene, how the sound in a scene comes together. Can you, can you walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in sound sort of say, you know, if if we do our job correctly, you shouldn't notice in a way. We're not sort of flashy in that sense. But, you know, to aspiring filmmakers, sound is one of the best bargains you can find. You know, we're, you know, 
cost-wise. You know, Gary Reisman used to joke that the sound of the Terminator 2 liquid metal sort of morphing through the bars cost, you know, millions of dollars to generate. And the sound of that was a 99-cent can of dog food, you know, <laughs> that he inverted and made this crazy sound. And so, um, you know, for an aspiring filmmaker, you should learn about sound. And I'm glad that you had that experience. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, the sound is recorded on the set. And sometimes it's recorded well and sometimes it's because of different reasons it's not, you know, and something like Lord of the Rings, there was so much fan noise and special effects noise and things like that, that they had to replace a lot of that dialogue. But the sound comes to us, usually whatever was recorded on the set, or if it's an animation, we have no sound to work with except the recorded dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we break it apart into different departments, you know, sound effects, dialogue, music, Foley, which is per sort of performing things like footsteps and prop manipulation sort of in sync with the picture. That's sort of an art form to itself. Um, and so we have different departments that kind of assemble their various sort of parts of the track. Um, we work with the director and the picture editor, usually sending them versions of sounds, let them audition things and give us notes. I really like that or I don't like this, especially on a big fantasy film or a superhero film where, you know, you're creating things out of out of the blue that have never existed before. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody's going to have an opinion on what they think that should sound like, especially magic and things. So there's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes we do what are called temp mixes where we'll, you know, throw everything we have at it up to that point, kind of do a quick mix of the film so they can show it to audiences and get some notes and thoughts and things like that. And then once everybody is sort of done, we come together for the, the mixing phase, which is the end, which is, you know, we, we do some pre-mixing first, which we sort of start to sum different things together. And then the final mix is when everything comes together. Usually the music isn't ready until that point. They're mm -hmm. usually working quite late in the process. The visual effects are coming in late. So the final mix is often where we, you know, everything should be ready and we put all the elements together and we sit there with the director in the room or the picture editor, sometimes the producer, and we we build the soundtrack, you know, and we, we change the volumes between, we make decisions, you know, where should the music be? Do we want to take music out here? You know, mm -hmm. is it loud enough, not too loud? Can you hear all the dialogue? And this, and we work on that for anywhere from, you know, 10 days to, you know, a really, really long mix might be six weeks on a really, really complicated movie. Wow, six weeks doesn't even seem like a lot of time when, you, when you're thinking about those big, big movies, man. You guys work fast. Holy shit. Yeah, we've, I mean, I, we've done a lot of work up to that point that, you know, hopefully allows us to work fast. You know, we've, we, you know everything is well organized and pre-mixed and kind of ready to go. So when you hit the final mix, you know, mixing stages are expensive and, you know, you have a lot of crew involved and things like that. So we want to be as efficient as possible. But you also want to have the time to, you know, make those creative decisions you never want to be rushed and then you know get done and go god we should have done this you know or we should have done that you know it's yeah. at its best you want to have a little bit of time of experimentation and not just you know problem solving and troubleshooting you want to actually get to be creative and try things and experiment a little bit and say you know what happens if we take this music cue out or what happens if we move that music to here or what happens if you know we take out all the sound effects here that might be kind of interesting so we we try to play to some degree and you know especially when the clients are amenable to that we, we love to experiment and you know mm -hmm. a lot of the great decisions sort of come out at that point because once you have all the pieces together oops knocked my desk once you have all the pieces together then you really start to understand what you can do you know what the possibilities are and that's when it gets exciting yeah man yeah totally because you get to play around and it's <clears throat> it's one of those strange things like when i start editing a, a film i'll generally start dropping in sound effects for myself to just hear it to just start to feel it and then a lot of times when i'm throwing in sound effects it changes my, my picture cut it changes how everything plays out because of it absolutely yeah I, I mean there are certain picture editors who really really build elaborate we call them avid tracks or temp tracks um in their in their in their editing software and um there's editors like Walter Murch, you know, who cut a lot of the Coppola movies and stuff who, you know, he mm -hmm. felt so strongly that he, you know, he demands to cut picture and sound because he feels that they're sort of two halves of the same whole. And for sure, as you start to put sound or certainly as I'm sure you realize as you put music in, 
you know, things and the pacing changes drastically and mm-hmm. how you perceive it. So, you know, you, you're always making adjustments to the picture based on the sound. And even in, during the middle of, in the middle of a mix, sometimes, you know, uh, choices that are made there will inform even the picture editor will want to make changes even, you know, while we're mixing something will come up and he'll realize, you know, if we, or I've even suggested several times, you know, uh, if you gave me 10 more frames on that cut, I can make this transition do what I think you want it to do. You know, right now mm-hmm. I don't quite have enough, you know, or if the fade into black, you know, isn't quite long enough or something. So um, I often make suggestions to the picture editor if I believe there's something that can improve, you know, how I can do my job to help the film. So mm-hmm. now it's super cool, man. So if you're if you're looking at a scene, so you get and you guys break it up by reels, which is a strange terminology these days because you know, no one's really using reels of film. Reels <laughs> are right. what, like 15-minute long segments? Is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, a reel was originally about a 10-minute long segment in the old film days. And then we, we, we worked in what were called double reels, or called AB reels, which that's where, that those are anywhere up to about 18 minutes long. They 2,000 feet of film, basically, is what, what designated usually a reel. And it was specifically for, you know, doing the optical printing and the actual making of prints. Nowadays, we still break it up that way, really for logistical reasons. We could We could work in the feature as a whole, but what usually happens is by the time we're, working at the end, people still need to be working on various parts of the movie while we're working on other parts. And if we had summed everything together, it would make it pretty difficult <laughs> for another person to keep working. So we still work in reels. And yeah, a reel is anywhere between a you know 15 minute to 18 minute chunk of the film. It can be shorter, but it usually doesn't, can't be any longer than that. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Because it, like, like you said, you're, you're, you guys are usually racing to get to that point, you know what I mean, at the end point. Mm. So you have people that are going back and fixing things and doing things. So it makes sense. To Absolutely. Make Especially because of the visual effects on a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie or any of these big you know, fantasy movies. The visual effects come in often very late and we need to make adjustments to the sync and things like that. So while we might be mixing reel four, you know, the editors might be, you know, one editor might be adjusting visual effects in reel three and reel five might have had a picture change. So the editors have to conform that and get it back in sync. So yeah, we're, it's, it's kind of a game of plate spinning sometimes a final mix just to keep all the pieces sort of moving and make sure that everything is ready when it hits the mix stage. Oops. Speaking of sound effects. <laughs> Crazy ringtone. Sorry about that. No Silence worries. Now. No worries, man. Our show's very loose, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> okay, good. Um, <clears throat> the okay, so I'm fascinated, and I think a lot of people just uh, don't understand how this stuff works. And I'm, I'm really hoping to open this up for this episode so that people have a better idea when they're watching or listening to a movie. More importantly, uh, sure. But uh, a lot of folks don't realize that when you see something simple, like if it's just like a door closing oftentimes, or if it's like uh, the roar of like the T-Rex, a lot of people don't realize that that isn't just one noise. That's actually like a collection of multiple noises that make those sounds very memorable, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and let's take it back one step further. So the sound comes for us from the production. And I think a lot of people may even also assume that if they hear a door close, that that was just the door closed as it was recorded on the set by the microphone that was on the set. Of course, that's almost never the case. I mean, we do use some of those. We call those production effects. They came from the production of the film. Um, and some filmmakers like to use those, but often they're not really recorded well. They might The microphone might have been across the room, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we really strip almost all of that out. We really retain the dialogue from the set, some optional effects that might have been recorded. But really, we're sweetening or replacing everything. Or in the case of an animated film, right, we're starting with nothing. Those right. sound, there was never a sound. Um, but yeah, even something as simple as a door close is often made up of component parts. So uh, a character walks up, he grabs the door, he slowly o- turns the handle, 
it latches, he sort of gently pulls it open. Well, that's not going to be one recording, right? We might have a great recording of the door handle, or it might be done in Foley. Somebody might be performing that particular sound. Mm-hmm. Maybe I want to find a really good door creak. In the case of a horror movie, I'm going to try to find a really nice, scary door creak. So this creak is going to be a separate component of that door opening sound. Um, so yeah, we break everything down into sort of pieces. Um, and now it's possible that I have a single recording that sort of is perfect for that, but it's unlikely. Yeah. You know, even in, in a library of our size, we usually break things apart. So certainly in the case of a gunfight, you have the gunshots themselves. You'd have different sounds from a close gun recording, a distant one. So when you when the camera moves down the block to show it, you know, we're going to cut different sounds for the gun at a distance. Mm-hmm. The shells that are flying out and hitting the ground is going to be a different recording that somebody would have made. You know, or sometimes we're recording things directly for the show. We try to do as much new recording on a given movie as we can, as, as budget and time allows. We like to, you know, a good excuse for us to get out and get some sunlight and things that we normally <laughs> don't get much of in this industry. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'll give you an example like Dark Crystal, which was a show I did last year, um, you know, that that soundtrack had almost 760 tracks of audio, a track wow. being sort of, you know, if you think of like a song being in stereo, that's two tracks of audio left and right. So to make Dark Crystal was almost 760 wow. tracks between the dialogue, the music, the foley, the sound effects, the backgrounds, all of these component parts, um, which were then all summed down into the final mix. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of detail work and breaking out of of sounds like that. The Skeksis have corrupted it. And now our world is at risk from the darkening. What is the darkening? Behold. They read too many stories. No, this was real! Everything the Skeksis ever told us was a lie. And now everyone, and everything, is at risk. It's crazy, too. And... And to go back to what we were just specifically talking about, like if you're looking at a gunshot or if you're looking at a, a door open, when you're when you're editing, I often find that when you think out of the box for the source material for those sounds, it actually makes it sound even better. Like you're not necessarily just re-recording a bunch of door opens trying to get the right latch. You might find a latch sound in like like a machine shop randomly someone using a tool that actually sounds better for that and it's it's like this hyper real sort of uh soundscape that you're building for it right oh absolutely i mean i think you know some tricks we do are like if a if a character is angrily opening a door we'll often cut a door close for the open just to give it that sort of percussive transient quality or <laughs> um certainly when you're working on creature sound effects and which i've done a fair amount of or magic well, you don't, there's no way you can go record anything. So now all you can do is record the sort of pieces to then design it. So you're going to, if you need to design a dinosaur or a, a creature, you're going to have to go out and gather as many real animals as you can. And you're going to need animals that might be moaning or screaming or squealing or hissing. And you sort of have to sort of break down in your mind what you think that thing might sound like and then kind of go find the pieces to make that work. Um, so yeah, a lot of the, a lot of what I do as a sound designer is simply play. I, I spend a lot of time recording 
with interesting microphones and interesting things. Um, and whenever I hit a, a sort of mental roadblock, I grab my microphone and I start walking around the ranch. Or I, a lot of times I'll go down to the Foley stage at lunch when they're on their break and I'll just call them and say, hey, can I use a stage for an hour? Mm-hmm. And I'll just start banging things around and just start experimenting. And, um, you know, some of the best stuff I've probably ever done came out of accidents when you were recording things. You didn't mean to record, but, you know, uh, something else came out of it. Um, I can give you one good example if you want, mm-hmm. not very long. So I was recording for a show a long time ago and I needed to record the sound of a, an electric razor, which is pretty pretty pedestrian, no problem. And I had to record the sound of an aluminum bowl falling to the ground. And I happened to have those two props. I was down on the Foley stage. And then I don't know why I thought, what happens if I touched this razor uh, to this metal bowl? And I was like, <laughs> I, so I put the microphones kind of inside and it made the most glorious sort of, uh, singing, metallic singing with these crazy overtones. And it's just, it's, it's probably my favorite recording I've ever made still. Um, <laughs> I probably could play it actually. It's probably if I hit play, it would actually play across this Zencaster thing. Oh, um, oh yeah, so, please. <laughs> okay, I'll, here, while I'm talking, I'll say it. So we were on Lord of the Rings and there was a scene when uh, the hobbits, uh, the ring rates are sneaking into Bree to kill the hobbits. And mm-hmm. it's this very sort of spooky, eerie sort of moment. And... Um, I put this sound in there and uh, I thought it worked really, really well. But once music was there, you know, music came in with this really big operatic score and it didn't really work. And so, you know, that sound was kind of lost. And then during the final mix at one point, I remember uh, Peter Jackson was like, hey, wait, turn your music off for a second. I hear something. And, you know, turn off the music and he heard this sound and he was like, you know, that's so cool. It's so creepy. And so we ended up cutting out part of the music just to play this sound. And it's sort of the only sound you hear. Cool. As the ring rays are sneaking in, and uh, if I can find it in my library of a million sound effects, um, <laughs> it's which, totally cool. uh, I will, I'm almost there, and uh, I think this will play because I think I have so- my sound miner, which is the program we use, uh, already set up to. Play. I love I, like, like the Tell best can... the best guest on a show is the sound <laughs> See if this works. I'm gonna hit play. Let's see if you can hear this. So yes, a lot of experimentation, a lot of playing around. You never know what you're going to get. 
Um, and a lot of the best sounds, you know, in probably the best sounds in sound design were all made by accidents. And, you know, from Ben Burt to Gary, I know that they, you know, they would tell you the same thing. A lot of the things that they, their signature sounds that they've come up with are things, you know, a lot of them came by just experimenting, you know. Oh, and that that's the fun of it, too. There's like this sense of exploration that happens when you're doing it. And the time that I spent hanging out with the sound team really changed the way I tell stories and really changed the way I write scripts. Because now if you read my script, I'll actually write sound cues in the scripts because I know that that's going to be a big portion of of what the piece is. And there's this old saying that sound is 50% of the movie. I think it's more than that. I think that you can have a really shitty image uh, and have amazing sound and people go, well, this was a stylistic choice. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's yeah. important. I, and I think, you know, one thing that's important is that, you know, sound can really elevate a film for sure. Um, but for sound to be really used well, it has to be conceived early on in the process. I mean, you can't take a really poorly written, poorly shot movie and somehow save it with some sound. Mm. Sound can absolutely elevate it and sound can solve certain problems for you. But, you know, the best filmmakers who know how to work with sound think about it very early on. Um, you know, in Spielberg often will take big scenes in his movies and, you know, know from the very beginning that there's not going to be score there. He's going to give that to the sound effects because we can really create, you know, think of the opening of Private Ryan or mm -hmm. I, I was privileged to work on War Horse and cut the entire trench battle in that film, which was fun for me. It was a 20 minute cool. World War One trench battle and there's no music. And it's just like, you know, it's like getting getting your choice of the best swing set on the playground at school. It was just like, <laughs> it's like a little kid getting to play and it was a very fast job, but it was, you know, it's so much fun knowing that you get to own all the frequency ranges and you're not going to sort of come to the final mix and realize that it's all a train wreck of sound and things. Um, Peter Weir was one of my favorite filmmakers, was amazing at using music and sound. And, you know, I think one dilemma for me is that modern films tend to rely on music really way too much, I think. And it's, yeah. it's a confidence thing. I think people who don't know how to use sound enough think that, that music is the only thing that can give them emotion. Oh, but, yeah. you know, I, I analyzed some Peter, Wheel films at, Peter Weir films at one point and realized he's only scoring like 15 to 20 percent of his film. And a modern superhero movie is scored between 80 and 90 percent, honestly, you know, of, of music. It's just it's everywhere. Um, and I, I think it gets fatiguing for a lot of the listeners. Mm -hmm. I think also when you have that much music, the music, people tend to tune it out. It doesn't do as much work, you know. Um, so, I mean, I love film music. It's insanely powerful and I love to listen to it. And when it's done really well, it's, it's so powerful. Um, but, it, but filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers would be wise to sort of learn about the rest of the sound options available to them and learn how to balance them and, and things like that. Well, because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do with any of this stuff is that we're just, we're, we're a bunch of liars. We're a bunch of magicians. So we're trying to make you feel some sort of emotion based upon a flat screen that, that has no depth to it. So whether you're doing that with lighting and you're creating contrast and you're doing that with dialogue and you're doing that with music and most importantly, sound. Sound to me and sound effects actually expand that border of that frame. So if you're watching it on TV at home, it actually gets rid of the edges of your television because the sound will float around the room if you've got a good sound system in your space. But when you're yeah. in the, if, if you're in the theater, man, that's one of the reasons why I love to, to, I'd love to go to the movie theater. And I think if movie theaters don't reopen, that would be the, the worst part about it is that when you go there, it's such a beautiful soundscape. In those, yeah. in those situations. Yeah, if they, you know, hopefully if, if the theaters are calibrated and they're playing things at the proper level, I mean, we still have a presentation problem in that, 
you know, especially in, in, you know, in Los Angeles. And so I don't know where you're located. Are you in LA? Yeah, or? I'm out here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in LA, you have, you're privileged with theaters that sort of can't get by with bad presentation. It's an industry <laughs> town, but in a lot of parts of the country, they turn things way down or, you know, um, somebody told me they went to see Tenant over in the UK the other day, a colleague, a sound person I know, and said that they had somehow patched every channel wrong so that the, uh, the dialogue was coming out of the right speaker. Everything seemed oh. shifted by a channel. And he went out to complain and apparently the manager kind of went in and listened to a few minutes and said, I don't know, sounds fine to me, and then just walked out. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there's still more to be done on that. And, you know, we have issues in the industry like the, the issue of loudness. You know, movies tend to be being made too loud and then theaters turn them down. So then the filmmakers want to even make it louder so that when the theaters turn it down, it's, you know, it's this sort of catch 22 situation going on. But yes, I mean, it, it will be a shame if the theaters don't survive. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that part of it will be lost. I mean, people get better and better home theaters and I have a really nice seven, one system in my living room, but it's not the same as going to a theater and having that screen and the sound completely envelop you. It's, it's definitely not the same and it'll be a shame if that doesn't return. I hope it, I hope it survives. It's, I think it's a little iffy to be honest. I know. Well, I, you know, high hopes. Cause I, I'm being very optimistic cause I think everybody's going to want to get out of their fucking prison cells anyways. At this well, point. that's true. That's the thing that will probably save us is once it's really safe to do so, people are going to be so starving for, <laughs> for entertainment and things that, you know, hopefully it will bounce back. It just, we have to see how long and if the theaters can survive that long. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, I just love, I, it's almost like a, it's, like I see sound like a fluid almost. It's it's like this thing that washes over you and it bounces off of different things and how it plays in a space and mm. um, and then when you're when you're sound designing just sound effects alone, it's almost like you're building a music track because you're working with different frequencies and you're trying Absolutely. to Absolutely. Yeah. It isn't just about a gunshot. So like when you hear a gunshot, it's that bassy hit. And that bassy hit will hit you gutturally, but then when you're putting like those high frequencies in there, whether it's the click of the barrel or if it's the shimmer of the shells that are coming off the thing, it just makes it even more tasty and even more uh, dynamic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, of course, the absence of sound can be incredibly powerful, too. So, you know, it's not only just like, um, you know, where do we add sound, but sort of where do we take things away, too? Mm -hmm. So one trick we do a lot is, especially in a horror movie, let's say I want to create tension in a horror movie. Well, Silence, of course, creates tension. The more silent it is, the more the audience kind of on the edge of their seat because now they start hearing themselves breathe and they hear every little movement they're making in their chair. So it puts us on edge. So Mm -hmm. what we often do is introduce sounds at the beginning of a scene for the sole purpose of then sort of taking them away. So I might I might introduce, you know, crickets outside the window and then, you know, the crickets go away. You may not recognize it as a viewer of the, uh, but you're certainly going to be your your tension is going to heighten because you know if you think of predators and prey, the crickets are all going until the sort of mountain lion shows up. Then the crickets all shut up, right? So the, the, mm-hmm. the absence of the crickets would represent sort of this threat in the natural world. So you know there are all these things that sort of work to our advantage subliminally in the world of sound that we can do. That you know again the audience would never put that together. They wouldn't sort of go, oh, the crickets are gone. Something bad is going to happen. But subliminally, <laughs> it will it will heighten their sense of sort of suspense for sure. Yeah, totally. One of the filmmakers that I think is a genius with that stuff is uh, David Lynch and all of David Absolutely. Lynch's stuff. Yeah. And he has such an uncanny ability of taking the most mundane sort of pedestrian sort of uh, uh, Americana footage and then just layering in the sound that makes you like literally want to throw up. Like, he, well, I mean, David, David had one of the most amazing sound designers ever, a man named Ellen Splett, who's passed away, unfortunately, quite a while ago. But he and his wife, Ann Krober, did amazing work for his films and, um, and also films like Black Stallion they did and things like that. But going mm-hmm. back to Eraserhead, 
Um, and Alan was one of the most inventive recordists out there. He invented, you know, or, or found special kinds of microphones and do all these things. And he was just very experimental in things. And, and David Lynch, he found a filmmaker who was the same. And together, they they were an astonishing, astonishing team. And mm. um, I knew some people uh, who work at the ranch who knew Alan and worked with him earlier and had worked on Blue Velvet and some of those films. And yeah, I mean, there's a fearlessness to that kind of filmmaking, you know, as well. And I think that's something that a lot of people think of with sound is they think it's sort of, it's a technical job. Okay. I have to have sound because I need the sound of that door. And, you know, people like Lynch said, you know, like, fuck that. You know, what can we do with this? How can we really like screw people up with this? You know? Yeah. And, um, and that, that sort of sense of adventureness, adventure, that sort of adventure is, is, is really admirable, I think. And there, there aren't enough filmmakers who are willing to embrace it that way. There are, they're out there. Um, and you know, I, I, I love seeing films, you know, even if I don't think that it maybe worked for me, but I love to see sort of adventurous tracks and things that people are just going, you know, screw it. Just what if we tried this? What, what would that sound like? Um, my friend, Peter Albrechtson is a, is a sound designer in Denmark. He does a lot of documentaries, but also a lot of features. And he has that sort of fearless quality whenever we work on a project or we're out talking, he's just like, he just wants to try the weirdest thing just to see what kind of cool thing might come out of it. And, and often, you know, he's done some amazing work that's like, I would like, I don't know if I'd be that adventurous to try that, but it's like, it totally works. It's great. Okay, you know the deal. It is time to show some love and respect to the men and women that make this show possible. And I am not talking about you lazy listeners, you passive listeners out there that aren't giving feedback, that aren't writing to us, that aren't subscribing. Do me a favor, please. And whatever podcast outlet that you're using to listen to the show, scroll down and rate it and leave a comment. And I know... It's such a difficult thing to do. You can't multitask while you're listening to a podcast. I'm telling you, it is one of the most important, valuable things that you can do for a show like ours because of these algorithms. So if you're commenting, if you're reposting, if you're subscribing, if you're doing anything that tells the algorithms that people like our show, more people will see it, more people will like it. So do me a favor, please. Scroll down and leave us a comment. Leave us a review. You can do a one fucking star review. You can say, I don't like the way this guy berates me. I think he's kind of an asshole. I'm fine with that. That actually may help our ratings because apparently negativity does really well on the internet. (laughs) So call me a piece of shit. I'm fine with that. Just interact. You passive. There's hundreds of you that are passive out there fucking interact anyway let's get to the people that are supporting the show i'm talking about our sponsors 
First up, the men and women over at Puget Systems. If you are a new sound designer, if you're thinking, if you're listening to this show and you're like, hey, look, I want to get into the sound world. I want to have a system that I can get started with. You'd be surprised at what you don't need. Basically, with sound, you don't need a lot. You don't need a big-ass, beefy system to do some amazing things. But you also need a very specialized system built with the right hardware in order for it to work correctly for you. And this isn't like a buy-one-system-fits-all kind of thing that other giant manufacturers do. You can get yourself a fantastic PC. And I know you're like, oh, PC? Fuck, I don't know how to build the PC. I get it. I did the hard work for you. I found a company that actually builds great PCs. They're incredibly supportive to artists. Uh, go to PugetSystems.com. There, you can pick out a base level package. So they offer up specific packages for your needs. You can actually choose based upon the software that you use. And then these guys like to interact with you. 100% write to them. Tell them what it is that you have, what, you're, what it is that you're working on what it is you need from your tool. Can you imagine that you're telling a company what you need from it and that company isn't telling you how to do it or fit within our confines and make it work with what we're giving you? That fucking drives me insane. That's one of the reasons why I found these guys. These guys are supportive of artists. They've been supporting this show since the beginning. They've been supporting me even before that, before we did the show. And anybody I send their way whether you're buying a computer or if you're uh, checking out their consultation program, because they don't ship outside the US, but they have a consultation program where uh, for a small fee, they will help you build your own system outside the US, which will be like a Puget system. So it's really great stuff. So even if you're looking to build your own PC and you need some guidance, go to PugetSystems.com and check them out. And this is the way to start creating on your budget. I'm telling you right now, this is the most important purchase that you'll make, especially if you want getting into sound design or if you're into filmmaking. I'm consistently on my computer, always on my computer. Get something that isn't going to put you in debt. Get something that isn't going to be outdated. Get something that can be upgraded. Okay? So go check it out. Go to PugetSystems.com. And there's a bunch of really great audio packages out there. I'm not sponsored by any of these guys. Um, but uh, there's really great packages out there from Isotope. I do this show through um, Adobe Creative Cloud and I do all this stuff in Audition. Audition's really great for this. And Audition is a great place to learn how to cut sound effects and apply effects to sound effects and mix and master. So definitely check it out, man. And the stuff isn't really expensive. So you can get started on learning this trade, learning this craft very simply and easily. Uh, and don't discount the power of YouTube. You can learn how to use all this stuff just by watching YouTube videos. It's a good place to start. Uh, so go check them out. Also supporting the show, as always, is our friends over at Quasar Science. Uh, this episode is all about sound. So Quasar really doesn't do much for sound stuff, but they do amazing things for lighting and visuals. And one of the greatest advancements in uh, the visual side of filmmaking over the past 10 years has been LED technology. LED lights allow you to dial in any color of the rainbow. They allow you to have very uh, specifically crafted color temperature accurate units. Uh, they run on batteries, so you don't need to have them plugged in. 
At this point, you don't have to start worrying about a generator and the giant crews that it requires to run a generator. Um, it really changes the game. And you can make some really beautiful images with LED lighting and the top, top, top of the market company is Quasar Science. So go to quasarscience.com, check out what they're working on, uh, check out what they make. They actually do a lot of content creation in the company themselves. They do a great puppet show, which is almost like a Muppet show on their website. Uh, they're really good dudes. Go back. Last season, I actually sat down uh, with one of the owners of it, and it turns out that he got into the business uh, from the circus. He came from a circus family. So go back and check that stuff out. Um, but go quasarscience.com. Um, and as always, please, like I said, support the show. Go to, um, man, my brain just stopped. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can donate to the show. There's a donation button uh, in there. And you can also uh, sign up for Audible. We, I haven't done a read for Audible in a while. Those of you who haven't done so already on anywhere else, you can sign up. Go to audibletrial.com backslash inlovewiththeprocess. The link will be below. If you sign up for Audible, You'll get 30 days for free and a free audiobook, um, and you'll get access to all their content. They actually have like a bunch of really cool podcasts and stuff that I, because I'm a part of Audible at this point, that you can see for free with your, or listen for free with your stuff, uh, with your fucking free trial. Jesus Christ, Michael. So go to audibletrial.com backslash and level the process. Check it out. And everybody who signs up with our link, the link below, we get paid. So do the 30 days for free. If all of a sudden your unemployment runs out or you're not getting a paycheck that month and you're like, look, I can't afford this right now, cancel it. We still get paid. It doesn't matter to us. It is the best way to get money to the show without reaching in your own wallet. So if you haven't done so already, sign up for free trial at Autumn. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. My last big uh, film that I did, I did a uh, proof of concept movie about, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but it's about a Russian drill team in the 1980s that dug deepest hole known to man. And the, oh, yeah. there's a myth mm -hmm. around it where they lowered microphones down in the hole. And they heard hell. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that story. So I made that film. I made a movie. It's called 12 Kilometers. I have to send it to you. And, and we had so much fun doing it because what does that sound like? And what is... What is this noise that takes control over people? And, and then we were doing a lot of analog stuff because it was in the in the 1980s. So like, what does the analog right. recording sound like? Um, I love it, man. I think it's so much fun. And when you get experimental, when you get out of that headspace where it's like, I need to have a sound of a door close, and you start to play into emotion where you're like, okay, yeah. emotionally, what am I trying to trigger with audio here? And I think, Absolutely. I think yeah. that's the route. I love taking that route because... Then suddenly the audience is completely immersed. Like I, I will show two different versions of the same thing. And if I'm, if I'm doing, if I'm sound designing it technically right, people are like, okay, cool, whatever. Very pedestrian on it. Like, yeah, okay, that's mm -hmm. great. But if you're emotionally doing it for some reason, they're like, why is this better? This is so, so much better to watch. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, th I think like what I notice when I watch like a lot of films at Sundance and a lot of really smaller budget independent films I almost always notice that the ones that seem the best to me 
have the most creative and sort of inventive use of sound. And again, it's something that you don't need a big budget to do, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. you know, uh, it's the sort of the cheapest part of everything you're going to come up with. You know, you want to go to your color timing, great, that gets expensive. You know, when the days we were printing prints, it was expensive, you know. Hire an orchestra to do your score, absolutely. You're talking some real <laughs> money, but, you know, to find a sound, and I don't mean to imply that, you know, sound designers work for five bucks an hour and a bag of chips, but <laughs> com- comparatively so, you know, to hire a, a good sound team is still an incredible bargain for what you get out of it. Yeah, completely. And, you know, like being able to expand your world. Like, there's another piece that I had done years ago where, it was just the scene opens and this this girl bursts into a cabin and she closes the door and it just it was it wasn't epic enough and I put some music in there to make it intense and it was kind of great but then I'm like I need to build this story out more and I ended up uh, starting the film on black and sound designing an entire sequence where a helicopter lands and she fights her way through attack dogs and then comes into this place <laughs> nice. and she's exhausted and people watch it and they go how'd you get a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly sound design I just it's like a, a girl in the woods bursts through a cabin door and i'm thinking it's like every great horror movie ever made starts with this. <laughs> the most perfect horror opening ever so you're gonna make a movie just called that a girl runs through the it woods and bursts through a cabin in the exactly. door exactly <laughs> exactly and then if you're taking that notion and you're sound designing it differently which we were where it's like she's gunfighting with talks and stuff and people right are like, what right. is this fucking movie because you can actually work against the preconceived notion with that. So, um, yeah, fuck it, man. I worked on a film called Hannah once, which was this, uh, yeah. I mean, if you know, Hannah, yes. I, I was just one of the effects editors on it, but I cut the opening scene and it was, it was sort of a similar thing. The girl in the woods trying to sort of fend off all these people trying to come and there's helicopters, all this stuff. And it was just like, you know, it's, a, it's amazing if you showed people sort of what that looks like without sound effects and just the production and then what it sounds like once the music and all the sound effects are in and how, you know, you watch it one way and you wouldn't be, excited by it in the least it just doesn't really sing it doesn't you know it's not believable or anything and then you watch it with a polished track and you're just like oh you know it's pretty amazing what a difference it can make when it's done right oh man it's the rock star stuff i i I say uh to my cinematographer that i do all the time him and i've spent years sort of uh, uh creating this relationship and then i let him take over the color mix like i'll sit in and for the color timing once in a while but i'm like if i have my choice i'm going to be over in the sound mix i'm going to be over there you can take care of the visual stuff because the sound mix is so like actually sitting in the space when everything starts to get mixed together is such an exciting uh period because you're seeing the movie come together but then you hear all these unlimited options and it's just it's it's incredibly magical yeah, and a lot of the directors that I work with and stuff too have the same sort of impression, and it's fun. It's not. It makes a really nice mix when you know. I have worked with some uh, people who didn't know a lot about sound and then didn't seem to particularly care, and then it becomes you know. Then it feels like they're like doing a chore, and they don't really want to be there, and they don't really. They let you do what you want, but they don't. They're not excited and things, and that's always a bummer. But most of the directors, luckily, I've been able to work with, you know, recognize the power of sound they're happy because they're coming to the end of their project. They really see it come together. It's like the, sometimes, you know, the first time, you know, that they've ever even sort of seen their own movie as a movie. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's yeah. like they've only seen it with rough sound and without all the things and the pictures. not. So, you know, that, that final stage is when everything comes to life. And, um, and you know, at its best, it's, it's a lot of fun to have a director who's really into sound and lets you do what you want to do and experiment and try things. And, 
when it's really good, it should be a full collaboration. I mean, you know, some of the big directors I've worked with and stuff were completely approachable. And I'd be like, you know, if, you know, what if you tried this? What if you tried this? You know, that's how it should be. The egos get left at the door. Yeah. And everybody works for the common goal of like, how do we make the best movie we know how to make? And it doesn't always work that way. But uh, luckily, I've had mostly that experience. And um, that's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Is there a film that you've worked on that you felt uh, was the most memorable magical transformation through the mix? Was there one in general? Um, there'd be a couple. I mean, I would say I have a sort of two projects that are the closest to my heart. Well, three, I would say. Um, I did a film called The Little Prince, which was an animated film. Um, and uh, it was my favorite book, still is one of my favorite books. And everything about that project was just perfect for me. I, I, I'm the most proud of that work of anything I've done. Hmm. Uh, the director was one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever had a chance to work with, a guy named Mark Osborne. He and I luckily just heard the same track in our head, so there were very few sort of disagreements or things to work on. He really gave a lot of leeway to sort of for me to experiment and try things. And it's a very delicate track. It's not a flashy sound design track in the sense of lasers and things like that. <laughs> um, but I got to work with a Foley artist named Heiki Kosi in Finland, who's one of the best. Uh, Shelley Roden and John Resch, who work at the ranch, weren't available. And so they were also people I work with, collaborate off and on. Um, and so it's just a track that has so much nuance and so much detail and so much beauty in it to me. No, I was just, I was just taking a little break. That's all. Oh, I thought you were someone else. You dead? Oh, that's great. That's great. Please don't report me. Break's over. See? I'm working. Oh. Work, 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 work. Don't need to report me. It wasn't him. What are we going to do? Mr. Prince? Excuse me. Stop! Oh, man. Darn it. I think you dropped this. My badge. Oh, catastrophe. It is him. Can I... What happened to you? Give me that. Evader's not gonna like this. Give, give, You're not supposed to give be, it. be like this. Come on, give me that. Um, it's one of the few films that I can sort of watch over and over again that I've worked on and just enjoy it from an audience standpoint. So that was one. Wow. Um, I got to do a Star Wars movie uh, solo, which wasn't a huge commercial success, but still, I mean, you, you know, it's only a handful of people have ever gotten a chance to do one. So I was incredibly privileged to sort of do that. And Oh, dude, that movie's, um, I, I'm going to say it. I love that movie. I think that movie's great. Well, I love it too. I think, you know, I think it's very underrated and it got, it got a un, bit of an unfair shake. You know, I think it came out too close to, uh, the one that came before it and some different things. But I mean, you know, and also any film where the directors are removed or, you know, leave the project or whatever, yeah. you know, is always is something that's, you know, uh, 
you know, it gets sort of a bad rap, but you know, I, Ron Howard was the nicest guy and we had such fun in that mix. There's no liars in this game, just players. The seat taken. Nobody's in the seat that I ain't taken from. So this is, uh, Sabak? Sabak. Sabak. Got it. You played before? A couple times, yeah. Captain Lindo Karazin. Han Solo. Looks like you're uh, having a good day. I'm a lucky guy. Can I ask you a question, Captain Calrissian? Anything, Han? It's Han, but that's okay. I heard a uh, story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. Yeah, that was a film that uh, I wasn't planning to mix the effects. I work as a mixer sometimes, but not not all that often. Mm-hmm. A little bit more lately, but um, the decision was made to make that into a three-person mix team only about two weeks before the final mix. And so they were like, why don't you just mix the effects? And I was like, uh, you know, I've already got my hands full trying to supervise and sound design <laughs> and all these things. And all of a sudden I was also sitting in the mix chair. So it was a very stressful job, but it was a lot of fun. And then the last thing was the thing I did last year, uh, Dark Crystal, which was a dream project of mine. I was such a huge fan of Jim Henson and yeah. I chased that project for many, many years. It was in feature film form for years and I emailed the producer and tried to get involved and then that fell through and all of these. Um, and so, you know, that film, as far as the work, is sort of the most detailed. I mean, that's a film that we did, you know, 10 hours of material in the time and the budget we would normally do like half a feature or a feature or something. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was such a chore sort of in the sense of how much work it was, but I, you know, it was also just like such fun. And then uh, for the experience, you know, I was 30 years old. I got to go li- move to New Zealand and work on Lord of the Rings. Of course, that's a ridiculous experience. And wow. that's yeah. to this day, you know, experientially, that was a, an astonishing sort of gift to get to do that and meet and work with all those wonderful people. And, you know, some of the people I've met on that have become my best friends and things like that. And so that's a thing that sort of lasts forever. But, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very privileged. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been very lucky. I don't, I don't discount that, that I've got to work on, you know, some very big films, but also just films that I really, really wanted to work on. I mean, I really wanted to do uh, Lord of the Rings. I never thought I would have a chance to work on that. Um, <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, you know, somebody was like, hey, you want to I'm going to New Zealand to supervise this. You want to come as one of the effects editors? And, you know, there were only like three Americans invited sort of down to work on it. And so, I mean, it was, you know, it's like winning the lottery. You know, I mean, I've worked worked hard in my career, but you can't discount. Sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and you got incredibly lucky. And on on many occasions, I've, you know, I've had that luck. That's so cool, man. So very cool. And so when you're talking about let's let's get back into some of the tech stuff. So. You're yeah. talking about a mixed team. So you have multiple people. So you guys are all working aboard in a room at the same time with the director behind. And then what are the, like you were talking to three person mixed team. So what are you guys dividing up the tasks? Like you're taking. Yeah, exactly. So I norm, most films nowadays use, usually have two mixers. And one of the people, like what I would be doing, would be mixing the sound effects and the foley and the backgrounds. So, uh, and the other mixer usually would be the one handling the dialogue and the music. That's usually the breakdown of a two-person mix. On a three-person mix, which used to be more common, and on some big Hollywood films they still mix this way, there may be a dedicated person just to mix the music, a dedicated person mixing all the dialogue in the ADR, and a dedicated person doing the sound effects in the Foley. So it's the dialogue and the music that could be either handled by one person or split into two people usually. Um, and usually this, that split happens if the composer really has a mixer that they want to sort of represent their music. Or mm-hmm. if it's a film that just is a huge, huge film, 
that it would be just too much of a workload for one person to sort of try to wrangle both, then they might split it out. Um, and there are certainly projects that have one mixer. I mean, I was the sole mixer on Dark Crystal. I mixed everything, the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects all together. You wow. know, it's just... That, that's a budgetary thing and uh, you know it's a it's a near field mix it's made for Netflix and so you know we're not mixing it on a very very large mix stage so there's not really room to put two people right next to each other and so um, yeah but I've never seen a mix with more than three nowadays I would say 90% of the movies are mixed with two mixers and when you say near field mix that's specifically based on the fact that it's going to be played in someone's room like their their television room like what is that yeah mean? we call them we call either a home theater mix or a near field mix near field means the speakers are near to you and not sort of you know 20 feet across the room with a giant screen Got it. Got so it. when we're mixing when you're mixing for something like netflix they don't want you to actually mix it in a large mixing theater unless it's also going to have a theatrical release which some of their films projects do but if it's something that's a, a, a series that's really never going to be played on a large screen or likely not, they want you to mix it in an environment that sort of represents, you know, something closer to what people might have in their living room, you know, around that size of a room, right. about that distance to the listening speakers, um, because it affects how you mix. You know, you, you, you mix differently when you're in that situation. So, um, and in the case of Dark Crystal, you know, we made a, a theatrical version for like the premiere and things like that where we made some small adjustments these aren't drastic differences we're making but you definitely treat things a little bit differently when you're when you're sitting closer to the speakers than when they're giant speakers far away well yeah a lot of people don't realize how how complicated a mix really is because you're essentially trying to take all this stuff so like you were saying before you have like one of the bigger timeline or one of the bigger projects which is like 700 tracks of audio you're literally trying to take Sometimes in a scene, it would be hundreds of tracks of like sound effects and vocal tracks and then yeah. all the sound. And you're trying to cram that within a decibel range. You're trying to cram that within like a specific sound range. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I've learned and when I, whenever I do any teaching, I try to convince people. And this applies to picture editing and sound editing and scoring and everything is that my favorite sort of quote about this creative process. And I know you're you're. Um, your podcast is all about the process. So I will say to you, my favorite quote is from the, from the author of The Little Prince, who in a different book sort of said, and the quote is, perfection is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing more to take away. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the final mix often is about removing and not about adding more and more and more and piling things on. And ideally you get to that before, but you know, if you think about the term editing, um, what most people think of when they think of editing is actually probably better represented by the term assembling, right? The first thing you do is not edit. You can't edit something until you first built it, right? right? You can't edit a movie until you've assembled it. You can't edit a soundtrack until you've sort of assembled a bunch of things. So sadly, what happens is that people assemble a soundtrack or they assemble a movie and then they either run out of time or money or they don't know how to actually edit it. So one of the most important phases for me is when I think that I'm done putting it all together, I start to go through and I just start to mute things relentlessly. And I might mute 50 to 60% of the sounds that we've prepared before we get to the final mix because I know that we can't possibly play all of these things. And so, yeah, I might have cut a sound effect for this car by that goes back in the distance, you know, two blocks down the road. <laughs> but I know, I know because of the content of the scene that I'm not going to even want to hear that. So I'll mute it. It's there. If anybody misses it, I can easily call it up. But what I don't want in the final mix is to sort of play this game of whack-a-mole where you're just like, uh, you know, and certain directors I've worked with react really badly to like getting hit with a wall of sound. You know, that can it can really throw somebody out of the experience. Yeah. So we're off. We want to be very careful about sort of starting minimally and then add in the things that you really only the things that you need. And I remember 
a film we did called Prince of Persia, you know, the huge climactic scene, we had assembled, you know, just a very elaborate set of tracks, all these sand things falling and earthquakes and rocks. And, you know, before we took it to the mix, uh, Ken Fisher, who was the editor of that scene, and I, we sat down and we just started going through, once it was pre-mixed, and we just started muting all huge sections. And we just went, I bet that nobody's ever going to ask for that. We're not going to need that. We're not going to need that. <laughs> and I don't think one thing was ever called back. You know, no, 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 once the music was in, at no point did anybody go, oh, let's bring that back. You know, it was like, so to preemptively sort of edit yourself is a hard thing to learn how to do to sort of not be possessive. You know, we spend all this time cutting it and it's hard to go, you know what? I don't need that. I'm going to, I'm going to erase it. Or I'm going to mute it or whatever. Um, but that self-discipline to sort of be brutal with your own work is pretty important, I think, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I never get emotionally attached to the sounds. I might, you know, I might miss a sound when the director goes, yeah, I don't like that. Let's pull that out. You might go, oh, I really like that one. But you're like, you know, listen, we're all doing this in the service of the final film. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's important. It's important to learn how to edit, you know. Well, totally, man. And then, you know, it must be interesting uh, being a, a an assembler of those sound effects. Like, what is the normal, do you prefer someone that's putting together uh, uh, sound effects early on and sort of cutting those? Do you prefer them to sound design as much as possible so that you have those options? Or is it usually specific notes that go to that person and say, hey, just don't worry about the cars that are off in the distance, just do what's in the foreground elements here or how does that work? What is the step? Well, from? I think, I mean, I, I think that the, a lot of the editors that I work with sort of have the experience to know already sort of, you know, what to cut and what not to bother cutting. Um, when in doubt, they'll just cut it and, you know, then they'll know that we can, you know, stop and we'll make a pass through and kind of usually what happens is I, I try to give the editors working with me quite a far uh, reaching power to sort of cut it as they think is right. I mean, I won't usually sort of give them endless lists of notes, here cut this, here cut this. I mean, they know how to do all that already and I trust them. I give them a lot of trust mm-hmm. to make their first pass. I might have created certain sound effects for certain things. Like I might say, hey, I made the sounds for this monster. I've made files there in the library for you. You know, use these to do this. Or I might have some thoughts or things like that. But the first pass, I don't want to sort of hamper them in any way creatively. I just want them to to work and sort of follow their instincts and to play, you know, a bit. And if we have time for that. And then... Then we'll sit down and watch the, watch the reel together. And then I'll start giving specific notes. Like, I'm not quite sure this is working as well as we could. You know, let's try something different for this. Or I have, a, I have a, sometimes I'll just get ideas like, hey, I have something in my library that I think will really help here. Sometimes they come with questions. You know, I don't know what to do here. This isn't quite working for me. What should we do? So there's a lot of collaboration and there's a lot of back and forth. Um, but no, I try not to sort of tr- have too many rules or say, don't do this or do this or whatever. I mean, that, that first pass, I really want them to just take a stab at it and let's see what they come up with. And, and often they'll come up with things that are things that I hadn't even thought about or things, you mm-hmm. know, that are better than I would have come up with. And that's, that's always fun. It's always fun to watch something and you're going like, oh man, that's so cool. Like, I didn't even think of that, you know? And, um, yeah, no, and again, totally. if you can leave your ego behind and say, you know, like I might be the supervisor, but I'm only as good as the team that's working with me. I mean, my job is just to wrangle everything. You know, I don't, you know, I might get credit on paper with, you know, the sound of a track, but of course it takes a whole lot of people to to put together one of these tracks and it takes everybody doing their best creative work to make a good creative track, you know? And when you're a supervisor, because that was another question I had, like a supervising sound editor, you're just managing multiple people and then sort of quality controlling the stuff up to your point, correct? Is that how that works? Yeah, I mean, I mean that that job entails a lot of things, including like interacting with the director and the picture editor, the producers, doing budgets, doing schedules. Right, schedules are always changing. So there's a fair amount of paperwork and things. 
Um, often I work with a co-supervisor and that person usually sort of handles the dialogue side of things. I'm not really a dialogue editor or a dialogue mixer per se. Mm-hmm. So what usually I'll do is I'll pair up with somebody who's, you know, really knows the dialogue side of things. And they usually have a little bit more time than me. So they usually a lot of times handle schedules and budgets like Steve Slanick, who co-supervised Minions 2 with me that we just finished. Um, you know, he handles a lot of that because well, I'm, I'm usually knee deep in the sound effects and it's, you know, or in the middle of the mix. So he's doing a lot of that. But and then, yeah, we each sort of we have people that work for us. So I'm in charge of the Foley and the sound effects people. He's in charge of the ADR and dialogue editors and just, you know, making sure everything's getting done, checking in like, hey, where, what did you finish today? You know, would you need something to throw on your plate? Are you done? You know, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just about a lot of communication, you know, back and forth, find out, make sure everything's, you know, kind of keeping track of all the spinning plates, make sure that, you know, none of them fall off and that we get it, get across the finish line. It's so cool, man. And then you always over at Skywalker Ranch, you guys always working in that facility? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I've done some work outside of there as well. Like Lord of the Rings was done outside of there. Uh, the film I did in, in Vancouver was done technically outside of the ranch, but mostly it's been my home on and off. And nowadays, you know, for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, everything I've been really doing is through Skywalker. Oh, it's so good. See, I hope one day that one of my features, I get to go there. Like that place. Well, there you go. Come on up. It sounds so mythical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty amazing place to work. I've been very lucky to sort of call it home. And and, um, it's a very creative space. You know, it's beautiful. It's out in the countryside. You know, it's a a very unique place for sure. So, and, you know, we do, we cater to films of, of every level. I mean, we do. Sundance films all the way up to these massive blockbusters. So it's not uh, it's not that we only do big Hollywood films. You know, in fact, I think one year we did like fifty eight Sundance films in the company or something like that. I mean, a lot of times we take them on as small projects that interest us, and the company's been really fantastic about encouraging. You know, even if they're not going to make much money on it, the company really believes in fostering you know new filmmakers and trying to be a part of experimental and exciting work. And and that's really an exciting thing about working at Skywalker is that you know. Uh, they have the luxury of, you know, the big films, which sort of keep, keep the doors open and, but also, you know, enough interesting people that work there that really want to do really interesting work to create documentaries or independent films or things like that. So that's always exciting to see that coming through. Well, that's good news. Cause maybe we'll work together. <laughs> there you go. Come on <laughs> that up. sounds awesome, man. Um, the, the other question I had, and you were talking a little bit about it, um, so what do you what do you think is the most difficult thing to design from scratch? Like if you read something in a script, you're like, okay, this is going to be a nightmare. Like, what I is- think that most people would tell you that creatures are pretty hard, and it's because what happens is you spend a lot of time trying to record animals. You record as many as you can, and then you just start to exhaust what you can do. It seems like you know, it seems like you have to kind of go back and look at the same pieces over and again because you know this recording works when you need power, or this recording works when you need pain and things. And but you also every time you do a job, you want those creatures to sound new and u- unique. And um, I sort of coined a phrase, you know, for I think when it's done not as well as it can be. You know, uh, I coined this phrase GSM, generic screamy monster. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to sort of make something that's just, you know, just this wall of noise of sort of shrieking pigs and things. It's hard to put character into creatures. It's hard to get nuance. It's hard to do anything original and unique, I think. So creatures, I would say, are certainly hard. Shadow.
magic is also hard, you know, fantasy things. Um, I did a film Maleficent and it was like, mm-hmm. I swore at the beginning, I was like, I'm not going to use chimes for magic. I swear I'm not going to use chimes <laughs> for magic. I absolutely refuse to use chimes for magic. And of course, in the end, I used chimes for magic to some degree because it's like, it's a convention. It exists, you know, it's ingrained in our brains that magic sometimes sounds like chimes, happy, benevolent magic and things. And so, you know, I still try to do variations on it and try to do something unique and original, but, it, you know, it's sometimes it's really hard. You're just sort of like, um, there are these conventions that people expect things to hear, uh, you know, and they're there for a reason because they've, they've experienced it for their whole life, you know, from the cartoons and the original Disney films and all these things, Tinkerbell and sure. all these sounds that are just there. So magic and creatures are both really, really hard. For me personally, as an editor, I really don't like to cut guns and I don't like to cut cars. Um, just as an editorial point of view, they're very hard because, you know, picture editors often will cut a car sequence without really thinking about the logistics of how that car could do that, right? They just defy the laws of physics. And so you have a, a car <laughs> going around a corner at low speed and then the next shot is up to 80 miles an hour already. And you're like, how the hell am I going to bridge that? You know, I'm going to make that smooth and believable. And so car car cutting is a lot of troubleshooting that uh, I find to be just sort of fatiguing. But um um, but yeah, creatures is the hardest thing, I think. And, you know, something like Star Wars was hard because you, you have all these spaceships and weapons, things that just don't exist, of course. pressure to that is that Ben Bird has sort of created the penultimate sort of the, the ultimate sound of sci-fi you know it's like how do you right. stay in, stay in that world and yet do something original and of course you know I didn't want to just rehash Star Wars sounds I wanted to do it all from scratch and things or at least anything that you know was new to the movie I wanted to make from scratch and do something of my own so it's an interesting balance of trying to honor a world that sort of has these sound rules, set, not rules, but guidelines set up for you because, you know, can't make something that doesn't sound like a Star Wars movie. It still has to sound like a Star Wars movie, but also like, how do I make it my Star Wars movie and not just something we cut from the library of sound effects? Because, you know, it's a big library of Star Wars sound effects. I could have probably just figured out a way to cut the movie all from that. But, you know, th- where's the fun in that? Yeah, right, right. And then you have the added stress of the fans and the fan base and all that stuff, which is fascinating. Well, there's that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, you, I can't think about that kind of stuff when I'm working on it. I mean, uh, Matt Wood, who is the co-supervisor of that and has worked on many, many Star Wars films, he knew more than I, like, some of the lore, like, oh, that's actually already been established. Actually, we probably can't change that. And like, oh, okay, and then go back and find <laughs> the, the proper sound effect for that. No, there was only a couple places that were like that, but things that I just didn't know having not worked on on a lot of the films, you know, one, like a droid. Oh, that thing's actually, that's in another movie. And, you know, the, the really hardcore fans will know that that's the wrong sound. So we should probably put that. It's the right sound. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I trust you. Let's go find it and fix it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> I, I do, as a creator, I love the idea of, it gets, it gets me really excited just talking about the sound of magic. Like you were talking there before and you're like, I don't want to use chimes. 
just if if there was a movie that created a new noise for magic, that's a, that's almost yeah. a reason to do a movie. That's a, it's a fascinating, fun, experiential thing, and I can't I can name all the films that I've had such an amazing auditory experience from movies like uh, The Conversation with Gene sure. Hackman, and and that experience was amazing for audio. Kill us if you got the chance. Yeah. Even all the way up to like the insanity that is Transformers and Michael Bay fucking craziness. What a treat! You and me alone. He's after me, not you! Wait, run! Run! There's so much to me in cinema that is memorable, and it really comes down to sound, whether you're talking Jaws or whether you're talking um, any of these sound cues that are so emotionally relevant and emotionally personal. Um, I, dude, I, I, it's my favorite part of all of it. Yeah, that. I mean, it's, you know, for me, it's so exciting to watch a project that has what I think is just incredibly creative sound and just... Um, I, I remember watching Chernobyl, the HBO documentary. Oh my god! Yeah, Stefan Hendricks, who's somebody that I know. Well, I think I, I, uh, uh, I, you know, I wrote him afterwards, and I was just like, my god, what an amazing, you know, job! Just like truly one of the best sound jobs I've heard in many, many years. And you know, again, you know what he what he told me back was that he had in the producer and the director filmmakers who absolutely knew how to use sound and wanted to use sound and gave him the freedom. But you know, so many of those sequences in that, you know, there's no music or the music from um, the composer is sort of so blended well with the sound design and stuff that it just kind of goes perfectly seamlessly back and forth. And, you know, there's there's some scenes in there, the, the scene where they're going in the in the dark to sort of turn off that valve and it's pitch black and it's, the entire scene is done by with sound pretty yeah, much. I mean, talk so about, cool. talk so about cool. you know, courageous. That's amazing. Yeah, totally, man. And then you look, I think the audience subconsciously loves this shit too. You know, because you look at like what like A Quiet Place did and how amazing that movie was. And that movie was literally a gimmick. That movie was the gimmick of like, you can't make a noise or the monster's going to eat you. Right. Which was, I haven't even seen that movie, I will be honest. I, I need to watch it. It's on my, my ever-growing list of things to get to. And I've just <laughs> had so little time to watch things, sadly, these days. And I know it's a... And also, I, I sort of have this fear sometimes of because I know, you know, it's this sort of... It's a sound-centric sort of gimmick thing. And... and, and um, don't take any offense. I'm not a huge horror fan. I don't watch a lot of horror myself. So I'm completely, you know, completely offended. Of, so completely it was just one offended. of those. It's been on my list. I'm like, I know I need to watch it. I should, I should get off my ass and watch it. But um, it's a great movie. But, it's great. And yeah, the, the yeah. thing I more than anything else is I, I liked how the audience really bought into the to the gimmick of sound. I thought that was really fascinating. Right, right, right. right. Especially in a time period where like people are more concerned about visual effects and it needs to be bigger and better and then we hit that whole point where it's like we need to put as many stars in the screen as possible and that's what's pulling people in sure um yeah i think the one of my fears nowadays is that like 
creative sound, people assume that it's like using all the speakers all the time and using all the technology. And it's like creative sound has nothing to do with the technology. The technology changes, right? Every year, yeah, yeah, yeah. some new format will come out. There'll be more speakers. There'll be things done. We have Dolby Atmos and, you know, there's Oro 3D and IMAX 12.0 and TTS Neural X and whatever. I don't remember what they're all <laughs> called now, you know, but we have all these things. But the danger is, of course, that we we equate sort of technology with creativity, and that's just not true. You know, some of the, again, the most creative tracks, they don't rely on the technology at all. They rely on filmmakers collaborating and making decisions and, and being bold. And, um, you know, some of the most creative, like you mentioned, the conversation, well, that, you know, technologically, that film is, you know, dated and different stuff, but sure. it holds up as well as anything, you know, sure. so my... I think Tarkovsky was an amazing filmmaker and you look mm -hmm. at a film like The Mirror or something and, you know, you have sort of like one sound playing at any given time and it's just, it's a completely courageous use of sound, you know, and it's, it's, it's not literal. It doesn't make sense, but emotionally it's incredibly powerful and, um, and we need more of that. You know, we need to get not, not let the technology bog us down. That's, mm -hmm. that's always my danger with my fear of technology. And whenever I teach sound designers, aspiring sound designers, I try to convince them, like, use plugins and processing and these things as a very last resort. Like, don't start by going, I'm going to take the sound and then I'm going to send it through a compressor and then a flanger and then a phaser and then a, an echo and all these things. It's like, no, creative sound is about thinking about it. It's about recording. It's about experimenting. And then all the technology is designed and, and useful for tr troubleshooting, for solving problems. But the, the technology can't be the creativity, you know. Right. The creativity no, totally. has to be sort of exist outside of that for me. And so... Um, and I, I, listen, I, I fall into that trap myself, you know, some new cool plugin comes out and a plugin is real to know it's like, you know, some process, an audio processor or, uh, something that does manipulates the sound in some weird way. And sometimes you need that, you know, it's hard to do some of that in uh, star Wars film without processing some of the things, but even in a star Wars film, you know, we spent as much time as we could recording new sounds. We sent record us out to record some amazing new electrical stuff and, and hyperplane boats and, in uh, San Diego and, you know, just to get really to record new interesting sounds so that we would have to sort of process them minimally. You know, that's always the goal. Totally. And you, there's something so exciting because I've, I've been out on the field while you're recording and it's, it's this interesting, it's like wearing another, it's like, um, it's like that John Carpenter movie, They Live. It's like you put on these different goggles when you put on a set of headphones and you hear it through a microphone and the world just is different. And it just feels different. And yeah. You, and you start to hear it almost on a microscopic level. And you're sort of playing in the space. And we've done like, like I've done binaural recording where you walk around with, with uh, microphones that are representative of the ears on your head. And yeah, just sure. listening to that space is so amazing. It's such a beautiful, like if anybody's out there and they're like, I want to get in the film business. And the, the, the sound industry is, is such a, a wildly like creative and experimental and well, and yeah, and we didn't really, and especially in like the, the way sound is sort of becoming a huge component of video games, right? Mm -hmm. You think about yes. anything now or virtual reality. Sound is incredibly important in virtual reality. We have a lab within the company that does a lot of virtual reality projects. And um, I've done some work in games and things like that, mostly doing cinematics, but sometimes some gameplay sounds. And, mm. you know, some of them, you know, some of that, the experience of, of playing some of these elaborate games, and I don't have so much time to play games so much but you know i've seen some of these things that people are doing and um you know these whole beautiful videos on youtube people walking through the sound of a video game and how well it's used to tell the story and move you from point a to point b and give you the information you need and and it, it, it elicit emotion all these things 
And as the technology allows for, you know, these things, you know, the early video games had such limited track space available for sound. I remember I worked on a video game called GoldenEye, which is a pretty (laughs) cult like EA video game. And I I did a lot of the backgrounds and the rules were so strict because it was like the PlayStation, whatever it was at the time, you know, had, you know, we could do sort of quad sound loops, but they could only be like 30 seconds long for an entire level. And it would just have to be able to loop around and around and around. So you try to create something that won't get so repetitive. And mm-hmm. you know, it was incredibly limiting the technology. Um, and so it forced us to be, you know, even that much more creative. But uh, nowadays, you know, you, you have so much more leeway in what you can do. So, which is pretty exciting, but also, you know, it's, it's not always a great thing to be, have unlimited sort of freedom. You know, sometimes those constraints can force creativity in a good way too. Yeah, no, I love it, man. I, I, I can I can sit here and gush all afternoon about how, how much I love that aspect of filmmaking and storytelling. And it's, it's, it's the closest thing to reading a book, honestly, because when, when, when you start to put pictures to a story, you start to put pictures on a screen, which is my favorite thing in the world to do anyways. But when you do that, you're being definitive. You're just saying like, this is what it looks like. This is what the right. world is like. This is everything that's going on. But if you close your eyes or if you, if you have a scene where it's happening on a black screen, then your imagination is filling in all those blanks right. and you're, you're, you're hunting for the thing that is recognizable to you. And then you start to slowly, like those of you listening, think about that next time. Like when you're watching something, close your eyes and, and then examine how your brain starts to put those pieces together. And that in itself, that journey yeah. is such a... Well, there's, there's even, there's some YouTube channels I came across at one point of people who do just that. They, they, they watch movies without watching it. They listen to movies on like a mm. good, on headphones or on a good, and they just, they don't, they don't follow the picture at all. They just listen to the movie. And, um, and then they kind of write about the experience. And of course, no better way to sort of understand all the things we've been talking about today than just turn off the picture mm-hmm. and, and then just listen to it and see if the sound can actually still guide you through the story. Listen to what's happening in the sound and realize, you know, where it's sort of pulling on your emotional heartstrings and where it's telling you the sort of story points that you need to know. And, um, and it's true, uh, you know, and it, it's fun if people want to you know, load up the old Toy Story uh, DVD and there's actually a, a sound effects only mix on there that Gary Rydstrom made, <laughs> I believe, that sort of no dialogue and no music. It's just all of the sound effects work. And you know, then when you really start to hear that in isolation, you really start to get a sense, you know, and knowing that every single thing you're hearing was created and recorded and manipulated and edited and mixed, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work, but it's it's it can be pretty fun. It's really cool. I mean, and then speaking of YouTube. There was years that I would just, like I had found, and now they're all over the place, but I had found a, uh, just a sound effects loop mix that went for like six hours of Blade Runner. And that's how I would put myself to sleep. I would just play, (laughs) so I just, in Blade Runner's world, and I would go to sleep in there and, and try to dream about it. It's really cool shit. Yeah, I remember. I remember on Lord of the Rings, I had to make this thing for the premiere at Con or a, a playback, and it was just like I had cut all the backgrounds on the first Lord of the Rings movie, which is something I still love. One of my favorite things is to do backgrounds, but so I, I basically had to make like an hour-long looping sort of ambient. Uh, sound of all the sort of backgrounds from the movie, sort of Moria and, and Hobbiton and all these different places and just kind of it became this sort of, it was like almost like this ambient sort of weird track of stuff and it was, I, I, 
I think I still have like a CD that I made of it at one point. Um, but yeah, it was fun just to sort of, you know, take the stuff we had built for the world and then sort of turn it into almost like a little art piece, you know? It's so cool, man. It's very cool. Where are we at? We're about an hour. How are you doing on time? Are you okay? I'm good. I'm, I'm unemployed this week, so I'm fine. But I, <laughs> like, all, like all of I us. Leave it up to you. <laughs> <laughs> like all of us, man. Well, we'll, we'll talk for a bit more because I'm really enjoying this, man. You, it's been a yeah. great conversation. Yeah. Um, so what, what really excites you? Because you've been doing this what, like over 20 years now. So what yeah. is the stuff that really excites you now? Like what is the stuff that you're really excited to do? Like getting back into work? Like what is the new stuff that you want to get into? Well, it's funny. I'm, I think like a lot of us, I'm sort of at a sort of a transition point in my career. And I think, you know, brought on by all of this crazy world stuff that's happening. Um, I, I think for me now, I want to move away from the big Hollywood stuff for several reasons. I, I want to work on projects that uh, are slightly less time con- sort of consuming. You know, some of these big projects will take me busy for a year. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's hard. You can't plan your life. You can't plan trips. You can't plan anything. Um, I want to work on smaller independent films, films that are really trying to do interesting and adventurous things. I want to work on films that sort of have some meaning uh, for me, I mean, the films that I really enjoy watching often are foreign films and smaller films and, and things that people just trying interesting things. And, um, mm. uh, I've had some chances to go and teach in Europe and do some mixes and I've, you know, I've done some, but I've missed out on a bunch just cause I was so busy working on a really, really big, long project. So, um, I'm looking to slow down a little bit, do more teaching. I, at the moment, I'm, uh, one of the things that exciting for me is that we're, we're doing a lot of what we call crowdsource, um, libraries of recording sound effects. So like right now I'm doing one for the next five weeks where we have about between 200 and 300 sound recorders around the world all going to contribute to a library of what it sounds like where they live. So they're going to go outside and record their city, their neighborhood, their backyard, whatever. And we're going to assemble this library and then we'll use that to raise some money for charity. Um, so, you know, I, I, what I, what excites me is recording. I, I, I have this ridiculous microphone collection and I don't get to use it nearly as much as I want to. So I want to do a lot more recording um, and teaching. I've been doing some classes on Zoom to three, 400 people at a time and just kind of teaching people about recording sound effects and mastering sound effects and things. And as I have more time, I'd like to do more of that. You know, these things don't pay anything, unfortunately, so I can only do them when I happen to not have you know, work, but, um, yeah, I have but, no idea what that's about. We don't get paid on this show either, guys. <laughs> wait, a, wait a minute. You're not paying me for this. All right. Uh, we're done here. Um, See yeah. So I, I think it's important. I think it's important to feel like I'm giving back somehow as a, and, and, and I think part of the sound community, I think this, this, this way that we can, you know, come together and try to do something good. I just think, you know, in this world, anything we can do to try and like you and your pocket, just try to give back to people and try to, mm. you know, it's so important. It's so important for our own mental health and, and things. And, you know, so I, I've been doing a lot of that, you know, teaching. I, I, I've been thinking about taking some sort of virtual interns across the winter. I've never done anything like this, but I might, I might try to take sort of, you know, uh, we have a problem of diversity in, in Hollywood for sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we need more representation from various groups. And so I had this thought, maybe I'll try to take some interns of, of people in those groups that are really interested in this and feel like they have a hard time breaking in and have a hard time getting access. And I don't know, just trying to think of ways to try and do something positive, I guess. And uh, so that excites me more and more. You know, the, the work, I, I still enjoy the work, you know, even though um, after 20 years, I sort of feel quite confident in what I know how to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always challenges. Every film is a challenge. I don't mean that it's become easier, but it's just... Um, I sort of feel like I set out what I 
meant to do for myself. And I don't, I don't no longer feel I have anything to prove sort of to myself. And so now I'm looking for new sort of avenues to, to do. I'd love to do some installation art sort of, I'd love to work on a more pure sort of a visceral level with sound and yeah, that's cool. Experiment to do some kind of sort of installation. I have some friends who do that. And then we talked about collaborating on some things and I don't know, I want to play, I want to play more is what I want to do. You know, I want to get out <laughs> and record and just experiment and, and do that. And, you know, sometimes I feel like on, on these big films, you know, it's so much problem solving and the time constraints are such that we always do the best job we can. But sometimes I feel I'm, I'm lacking that ability to, to really experiment and to just to screw around and have fun and, and do something really unique. Sometimes we just we have time to do a great job, but we don't have time to really, you know, do that part of it, which which I enjoy the most is just getting to play, go record and collaborate and try stuff. And uh, I did it. Yeah. It, it makes sense. And it's no surprise that you're, that you're feeling this right now. I think a lot of people out there are feeling the same thing right now. It's yeah. I mean, there's nothing like being locked in your house for six months to make <laughs> you feel sort of restless and want to do something differently. And, uh, this yeah. has been brewing for a while, even before this sort of, this sort of crisis hit us and stuff. I've been sort of wanting to move away from that. And it doesn't mean I won't go back to it and, and things I'm going to have to somehow pay my rent and whatever, sure, like the rest sure. of us, I'll have to find work and things, but um, but I, I'd like the ability to slow down a little bit and really like, I, I need that creative outlet to f- for myself as well. I feel like often I spend, you know, eight or 10 months sort of creatively spent on somebody else's vision. And it doesn't mean my vision isn't in there a little bit, but it's not mine from start to finish. And so um, I want to do projects like that that are sort of mine. I want to, you know, really be able to do something completely for myself and um it makes sense and then it's also that reinvigorating that that so many artists because you'll you'll hear artists hit that point where where it seems like you are where you've you've gone through and it's like look the first hurdle is like i'd I'd love to get into that industry and then you get into that industry and then you've been very lucky and you've worked on such wonderful things to that industry and now you're at that point where you need to just sort of reinvigorate and then after you go through the process of doing that you come out even stronger and then your path may change your path may de- like shift a little bit sure yeah i'm just feeling i'm feeling restless in in what i hope are all the best ways i mean i feel creatively a little bit restless i feel sort of you know and i hope that that will spur something fun and exciting you know i'm not exactly sure how it's going to all play out but that's not a terrible thing either i mean listen i you know there are people genuinely suffering out in the world and I've got sure. nothing to complain about, you know, sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm healthy. I have, you know, enough money in the bank to outlast this thing for a little while. And, you know, so, um, I have no complaints, but I do feel like I'm like, okay, what, what more can I do? You know, I, I, I'm turning 50 next year. And so I'm realizing like, okay, the clock is ticking. I have things I want to yep. do creatively in my life. And, um, so I'm going to have to sort of take some time to do them. I think, you know, I keep putting them off. As you know, as a filmmaker, you can always say, oh, I just do a little more research or a little more writing or whatever. At some point, you just have to, you know, go make a movie, right? If that's what your goal is, <laughs> go yeah, make exactly, a movie. If it's, exactly. you have no money, you still go make your movie. If, you know, you have more money, then great. If, you know, but. No, you always want to be, you always want to be creating and you always want to get to that point. And the, our business is such a strange business because it requires so much ultimately. Like it requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of resources. So you can't be at least directing. You're not, you're not creating as as often as you want to be. And so, like, as soon as you can get to that point, you're just like, let's fucking go. Let's go. Let's well, go, sure. Let's I go. mean, I'm sure you know. You're like, you spend a lot of your time trying to raise money oh. or get the things lined oh. up or find locations and all this stuff. And that's you know, that's not the creative part that you want to be doing, right? You want to be on set directing, and then you want to be editing. You know, you. But of course, you know, filmmaking has a lot of logistical work that has to get done. So, and and the sound is the same way. There's a lot of logistical work. 
that I have to deal with and to allow, you know, then hopefully those moments of creativity. And um, so, yeah, no, I'm right there with you, brother. I think it's yeah. I, I, like, I wish you the best luck. I hope. And I, Thanks. we had to stay in touch because I want to hear what you do. Like I'm yeah, really for excited sure. Absolutely. to hear. Keep in touch. And you know, like I said, whenever it's safe to do it again and stuff coming up, I'll show you around the ranch. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah. I would be such a nerd trip for me. Cause uh, just, just an audio nerd trip. It'd be such a wonderful experience. I'll let you ride the land speeder around because you know we have those in light. They're all real, you know. It's all real. So, yeah. look, I'm, I, as much of a Star Wars fan as I am, I'm more of a nerd about like just the audio. And a lot of people don't realize the the work that has gone through the ranch, like Skywalker Sound, like re like changed the business. Like it it became the standard for Hollywood. So. The, the films that go in and out of there, they, they're not all, you know, at this point, not all Disney movies. There, there's, there are all sorts of people that come in and out of that space. Oh, yeah. I mean, we do, we do, we do, you know, our, I suppose we have the reputation of doing a lot of big Hollywood type films, but, but absolutely, we do all kinds of projects and we do a lot of documentaries in a given year. We do, a, we do, a, we do everything, television series, you know, just, uh, things like that. So, you know, we're, we're a full functioning sound facility. We can work, we can do anything from video games to virtual reality to, to, you know, blockbuster features. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I will, I will say this though. You can tell when it's gone through there, the way, the way it sounds like you guys are like you, you are that pinnacle of sound quality. Well, we try. Like, yeah, I mean, that's certainly the goal. There's a lot of quality sound people now working around the world and, and things as well. But So I won't say we have a monopoly on that, but certainly, you know, we have a high bar of expectation we set for ourselves and our clients expect that. If you're coming to us, you, I think you expect a certain level of quality to come out of it. And, you know, we do our best to deliver that in every project. Yeah, no, it's super cool stuff, man. I think we're hitting that point where I'm going to have to let you go, but... No worries. This is the point of the show where I ask the guests to give a little bit of advice to the younger filmmakers that are out there. And if someone is listening to the show and they had never even thought about sound, and now because of how cool we've made it sound, <laughs> they're like, fuck, I want to get into the business. I want to get into the industry. Uh, what would your advice be for someone that really has no experience? Like, how would they get into it? How would they get started? I mean, I wish I had sort of, uh, sort of a concrete sort of, set of steps that you could do. I would say first, if you're interested in it, just learn as much as you can. Um, you know, start watching films with great sound, start trying to listen to it, break it apart, see what they're doing. There's a film called making waves, which was a documentary all about this, which was came out last year. It will give you a really nice overview more. It's, you know, interviews with all the greats and things like that and the history of it and things, um, buy a recorder, whether it's the cheapest handheld recorder, something called a zoom H uh, one end is it like a $99 recorder that sounds really, really good for what it is. Just start recording things and playing, you know, start to, if you're interested in sound, it's super crucial. Other than that you sort of start to build your own library, you build your own sort of sonic identity. And there's nothing like learning how to record to sort of learn how to work with sound and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there are, there are groups on Facebook, uh, for sound design and things like that and mixing, you know, join those groups, ask questions, um, there are groups on Slack and Discord, which are these two platforms for sort of, you know, forum type things on, mm -hmm. and, you know, reach out to those kind of things. Um, and, you know, then find somebody who's willing to mentor you, even if it's just answering questions from now and again, you know, that you have and things like that. And I mean, I, I always try my best if people contact me to reply to them when I have time and, and things, but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's not an easy industry. I mean, be aware that if you want to work in this industry, it's tough. You know, it's there's only a certain number of jobs and a lot more people uh, want to have them than there usually are jobs available. But don't be discouraged if that's really what you want to do. Um, and the other thing I tell people all the too is, you know, I, I get emails sometimes from people who are so heartfelt and so genuinely, oh, please, I need, I, I, it's my goal, my dream to work at Skywalker Sound. I'll never be happy unless I can work there. And I keep <laughs> trying to say, listen, you know, we're a company of 75 people, you know, and with a pretty low turnover rate. So don't, you know, cr- great sound work is happening all over the world. It's happening on small films and big films and games and TV. So, you know, aspire to do the best work you know how to do, not aspire to work at a particular company. Um, you know, and, and don't, and also if you think you want to work in feature films, don't discount that maybe video games is something you should look at. You know, Mm. honestly, I see job postings for video game stuff all the time. I mean, they're actually an industry that sort of puts out, you know, um, job listings and things. And the film industry is often hired, you know, from within the nepotism is fairly strong, unfortunately. And, um, but you know, video games is an incredibly creative way of using sound and, uh, things like that. So just explore every avenue you can, but just start to meet sound people. That's the main thing. Use social media for something good, which is to try to meet people, try to ask questions, um, try to find people who might be in your area. Like you said, you, you know, you, you happen to share a studio space with a sound designer, you know, find somebody who's willing to let you hang Mm -hmm. out for a day or two and watch you work and ask some questions and things like that. Um, you know, film school is always an option. I mean, I went to film school, I'm always sort of torn on it. You know, it's an expensive proposition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the people I went to film school with never ended up finding jobs or working in the film industry. Came out with a lot of debt. Some of us did different things. You know, film school is sort of the ultimate networking tool, if anything else. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just be ambitious. Be bold. Contact people whose work you really admire and say, hey, I'd love to learn something from you. And, you know, they might say, I'd love to teach you, but I'm just so busy. I don't know what I can do. And they might say, listen, you know, let's I'll try to help you, you know. And um, I've, I've been lucky enough to, you know, to have interned with Gary. And Gary's one of the most generous people I know and, you know, uh, is very generous when he can be and stuff, too. So we have that culture a little bit, I think, up north. And but, yeah. It's, you know, but just don't get discouraged because if that's really what you want to do, there will be a way you can work in this industry. You know, it can be a very creative outlet. You know, you can make a decent living in this, just like a lot of places in the film industry, you know, but you, and also the last thing I would say is uh, from the beginning, look after yourself and take care of yourself because as you know, this industry, you know, mm. and it can eat you up and chew you out and take advantage of you in many ways, shapes and forms. You know, there are, there are producers, there are the bad producers out there who will be happy to have you work for free for four months, you know, under the auspice of giving you a share of the profits that they know are never going to on paper show it, you know. <laughs> so people have to be careful and look after themselves. Realize when you're, you know, you might have to do an unpaid internship, but realize at what point now you're just basically working for free for somebody. And that's different. If you're going to be an intern somewhere, you ought to demand things in return and say, I'm willing to go get coffees for everybody. In exchange, I want to know this. I want the access to do this. I mean, that's what an internship is supposed to be, is that it's designed for the learning of the person and not just to have like a free runner, you know? And um, so... So just tell people, make sure people look after themselves because, you know, it can be a tough industry, as you know. So are you guys now sound nerds like I am? Are you guys going to watch movies the different way now? Are you going to listen to movies a different way now? Right? I guarantee you, 
most of the movies that you love, you love because of the way they sound. I guarantee you it's because of the work of sound designers, sound mixers, dialogue editors, composers. There's a whole team of people that you will never see. You will never see their work. Guaranteed, you will never see it. You will only hear it. And I hope this show has given you a greater appreciation for the way a movie sounds. When I talk about how a movie smells, a lot of it comes from the sound. I know that I'm not making any sense there. And if you guys downloaded your fucking uh, bingo card, your drinking bingo card, and uh, hit it up. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening to the show, guys. I hope you guys are enjoying it. hope you guys are enjoying our new season, season three of the podcast. Hope you guys are liking the new graphics, the new music. Uh, We're playing uh, a lot of new tracks from Knight Rider 87. We're playing tracks from Code Electro. Uh, We've got some new thumbnails. We've got some new graphics. Very excited about this season and about the way it sounds. And uh, strap yourselves in because I'm not going anywhere right now. It seems like podcasting is a big part of my life. So I'm here for you if you're here for us. I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.